Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. Uh, I'm our college teaching director, uh, and I'm going to have you check out this great little gem of a YouTube video that I found a few weeks ago. Happy birthday, dear Marty. Happy birthday to you. Now you can blow it out. Oh. Again. Blow up, blow up here. Oh. You're terrible at this. You're going to let your head on fire. You go open your mouth and blow. Do it. <laughs> Hold on. There. There. Ready? Blow. There you go. Yay. Good job, buddy. Man, the, the reality is we've all found ourselves in that position, right, where maybe there wasn't a cupcake in front of us with an impossible candle to blow out, uh, but maybe it was a different position where we felt like we lacked the proper instruction uh, or equipment to succeed. Sometimes we find ourselves maybe lacking uh, the motivation to, to accomplish some sort of task. Maybe we all asked ourselves at some point, I mean, why do I need to make my bed if I'm just going to get in it? Again, right? I still ask myself that from time to time, even though I'm a father. Uh, I find myself, we find ourselves in a position of asking me, how am I supposed to finish this project? How am I supposed to accomplish this task for my work or for my teacher or for my prof or whoever it is? How do I make this thing happen that is expected of me to make happen? We find ourselves in positions where we feel as if we lack the proper instruction or equipment or motivation to succeed. And what's tragic is that oftentimes we as believers feel this way towards God. Many times as believers, we find ourselves asking, how am I supposed to live as a Christian? How am I supposed to meet the expectations that God has laid out for me in Scripture? We find ourselves confused and frustrated and maybe lacking the proper motivation or instruction to accomplish what God has put before us. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Frustration. What do we do when we find ourselves in that position? Over the past few weeks in college, uh, across the street where I'm, I'm normally found on a Sunday, uh, we've been walking through soteriology, which is just the, the big church word for the study of salvation. And we've been walking through this kind of piece by piece uh, in an attempt to just better understand salvation. Because the reality is that the better we understand salvation, the greater we'll appreciate the incredible gift of life that God has offered to humanity by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that, that I really enjoyed speaking on, one of the things I felt like would be really pertinent for, for us as a whole, as the entire church body, was to look at this idea of sanctification, which is essentially the Lord's work in our lives to conform us to be more and more like himself. It's answering the question, essentially, how do we live as Christians? Where's our instruction? Where's our motivation? How do we meet God's expectation for his children. One of the key passages that we have in talking about sanctification is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or want to pull out your phone, use an app, we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to start. 
And what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the Apostle Paul speaking to a church of believers and he's, and he's talking to them about what they are called to do and how they're called to live as Christians. He starts off 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 saying, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us about how you must live and please God as you are in fact living, that you do so more and more. So Paul is starting off making a very important distinction. He's talking to brothers and sisters, right? He's speaking to fellow believers, other men and women who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who are no longer children of wrath, but are instead adopted into the Lord's family, who are now sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. That's who he's speaking to. And that's an important thing for us to grasp because we're going to talk about some sort of ways that we live our lives. And many times as as the church, especially in our current culture, we make the mistake of, of trying to enforce those rules or trying to put those living expectations on non-believers. We find ourselves focused so much on other people's behavior when we should really be stopping and and asking ourselves, what do they believe? Because that's where the behavior comes from, right? It's, it's all about the belief beforehand. So Paul's speaking to people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have put their trust and faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He's saying brothers, sisters, in other words, other Christians, other believers, people who have placed their faith in Christ. We're going to talk about how you must live, how you must please the Lord, and another important distinction to make is to notice that Paul is speaking to a community. Right? He's, not, he's not saying this uh, in terms of an individual call to action. He, he's speaking to a group. These are, these are plural uh, nouns and verbs. He's saying you as a whole, you're going to be receiving instruction. You as a whole, you're going to be living and pleasing God in a certain way. The reality is that we as believers, we need each other. We need community in order to bring this about. In order to live in a way that pleases the Lord, we have to rely on each other. Just as iron sharpens iron, so must a brother sharpen one another, right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to live in community. We're we're sanctified in community. Because Paul says essentially right there that we are called to live in such a way that pleases God. Meaning that he's talking about a a lifestyle that's designed to please the Lord. He's reminding them, look, when you become a believer, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins... That's not the end of the story, or that's the beginning of the story. Sometimes we see that, that moment of, of salvation, that moment of justification, that moment where someone places their faith in Christ. We, we see that as this kind of grand finale, but, but Paul's saying, no, that's, there's so much more beyond that. If you roll the credits at that moment, man, you're missing out on a lot. That's, that's like Aladdin finding the lamp and be like, oh, genie, and then roll credits. Like that'd be a really disappointing movie because you don't see stuff. It's Elsa discovering she has ice powers and then boom, roll credits. You're like, man, what, what about Olaf? Like you want to know more about that story. Paul's saying there's a lot more to your life. There's so much beyond your saving faith. There's a life that follows. There's a lifestyle that follows, one that's designed to please God. He says, this is something that, or for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. In other words, this is something that I don't just want for you as Paul. This isn't just something that I want for you as Jacob Smith, college teaching director at Grace Bible Church, Anderson. This is something that Jesus Christ commands of us. This is something that he expects of us. This is something that he calls us to. God himself calls us to this life that pleases 
him. Ultimately, his will is that we would be sanctified. The will of God is our sanctification. Another translation of this would say the will of God is that you would be made holy. Because that's what sanctification is. Essentially, sanctification is the process by which you are made holy. Or literally set apart. When you see holiness in scripture, it's, it's literally talking about something that's been set apart for special use. So the will of God, the desire of God, is that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy, that we would be set apart, that we would be living a life that pleases him. But before we can really dive into that, before we can really talk about this idea of sanctification, we we have to define a couple other terms. One of which that I already kind of threw out was the idea of justification. All right, so once I place my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins— when I confess that there's nothing I can do to heal myself or fix myself, there's nothing I can do to fix the brokenness in this world, when I finally admit and accept the fact that it is only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that I can be saved, I'm justified. That's the term we use to say that you are essentially declared righteous before the Lord. It's this one-time switch from unrighteousness to righteousness. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 5. But therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way to translate that would be, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is a a beautiful thing that all believers experience. This one-time switch. And when that happens, it's, it's more than just sort of knowing like, oh, I'm, I'm declared righteous before the Lord. There's a lot more at play. We, we also see something uh, come into play, a term that we use known as restoration. What Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5. That then if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. Restoration is the transformation that we experience from a slave of sin to suddenly free in Christ. We're no longer under sin. We're no longer under the law. Instead, we are suddenly freed to live under Christ. Now, at times we turn back to sin. We turn back to the law. We seek to justify ourselves in those kind of works-based salvation ways. We do that. Even as believers, we do that. But Paul says you don't have to. There's this newness about you. Now, some of the old is still there, right? We still have those competing natures at this time. One day, they'll be gone entirely. A day that we all should be praying for and longing for constantly. But for now, while we could turn back to those old desires, those old ways, we have the freedom to go a different direction. And it's that tension It's that decision process between what is old and dead, what what Paul says, the the old self and the new self. It's that decision that has to happen. It's that tension that we hold where I sometimes want to live in this old way, and yet I want to live in this new way as well. And I have these new desires and these new affections. There's this new creation that's come about. This is where sanctification takes place. This is where we see God working within us to conform us into his image, to make us holy, to make us set apart. Because as we begin to experience salvation in a daily living, in a daily environment, Paul says, dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with on reverence. As we engage with our salvation in a daily life, we're called to work out our salvation 
Which some people take this to mean, well, okay, so you have to kind of work for your salvation. And that's not at all what's taking place right here. Paul's very intentional with his wording. The Lord speaking through Paul is very intentional with his wording. In the original language, it's very clear that he's speaking about working out your salvation. In other words, putting your salvation into use. Not working to obtain your salvation, but working it out. Using it. Putting it into practice. This is the same idea that James speaks about in James chapter 2. Saying that our, our works are needed for our faith because our, our faith without works is, is dead. It's useless. In James, he uses the illustration of a man coming to you who is hungry, who doesn't have any clothes. He says, well, if you see that person in that need, don't just say like, oh, hey, I'll pray for you. Hmm. Go in peace. Like, don't, don't do that. He says, instead, you need to give him some food. You need to give him some clothes. Put some works in that. Work out your salvation. Use that faith that you've been given. Paul says we need to continue working out our salvation, putting this free gift of salvation into use. January 9th, 2010 was a wonderful day in my life. It's when I finally tied the knot with my wife, Susan. And Susan and I, uh, starting on January 9th, 2010, uh, we not only became married, we not only signed that document and got it all figured out and yay, man and wife, and had a party and drank grape juice, but we didn't only do all those things, right? We also then moved forward as a married couple. We started living differently. We started acting differently because of our new status as a married couple. We began to uh, live together, right? We moved in together. That's... I, most married people do it. I highly recommend it. It's really great. Uh, we lived together as a married couple. We slept together. We ate together. Right? We shared all these things. We merged uh, all of our stuff. We, we merged our bank accounts, all of our money, uh, all of our silverware, spoons. I had more spoons suddenly in my life than I'd ever had before because I had no spoons and now I had many. So it was wonderful. It's a wonderful transition. Again, highly recommend it. So when you find yourself in that moment, we found ourselves in that moment, we, we began to live and act differently because of our new relationship status. When we first felt the first, the first tinge, the first kind of desire to, to have a baby, we got a dog because that's what you do as a married couple. You just get, you get a dog for a while. And that's what we did. We started living and behaving in a different way because of our relationship change. We started putting our marriage into practice. Paul says we are called to put our salvation into practice. We're supposed to live in a different way. We're supposed to use it. It's more than just being justified. It's more than just being restored. There's also this idea of sanctification. The idea of working out our salvation with awe and reverence. Putting these things into use. This is an ongoing process by which regenerated people are enabled to live to more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Paul says, this is my desire for you. This is Jesus Christ's desire for you. This is something that all believers are, are called to because if justification and restoration are, are my birth, essentially sanctification is my growth. This is the lifestyle that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The life that's pleasing to God. We put our faith into practice. Because the reality is when we are in a healthy relationship, we seek to please the other person. Right? God calls us to a lifestyle that, that pleases him. Because that's the way relationships work. If you're in a healthy relationship, it is natural to grow and please that person. That's why we see engagement stories that are super ridiculous like this one. Ladies and gentlemen... Quick announcement, if I may. 
My beautiful girlfriend Brooke and I have been together for a while now. Four years, baby. Four, who's counting, right? It's, uh, <laughs> I think it's about time I ask her a very important question. Bobby the Ring Prince. Right? We all had that friend who jumped off a building for his engagement. Right? Now, before you get too excited, that turned out to just be like a marketing prank thing So for the energy drink. So don't get any crazy ideas. Don't do it. Probably. Uh, but we see these types of things. We maybe even have those stories. We have friends that have those stories or, or family members or we ourselves. We went to these great lengths. We set up that beautiful picnic on the island or we set up this gazebo in her backyard. Or we, we did all these crazy things to, to propose... To our now spouses, why? Because we wanted to please them. Because we wanted to to make them feel special and wonderful and valued. If you're in a healthy relationship, you are seeking to please that person. It's just the way a relationship works. If you're in a relationship and you're not seeking to to please that person, you're not seeking their good, uh, then that's probably not a very healthy relationship. If Susan asked me to change a diaper this morning, well, she did. So Susan asked me to change a diaper this morning. If my reaction is, what? I'm preaching. Like if I did something like that, you would look at that relationship and say, that's not very healthy. Like there could be a little bit more health in that. Like we know a natural, a healthy relationship sees the, each person seeking to please and, and cherish and, and value the other person, to serve them and sacrifice for them. God wants that from us in our relationship with him. He wants us to live in such a way that that pleases him. So how do we go about that? Because the the truth is many times we find ourselves not necessarily wanting to do that. Just as we found ourselves in that with with a dating relationship or or a marriage uh, or in another family relationship with a sibling or a parent. We find ourselves at times not really wanting to serve that person. Not really wanting to, to sacrifice for them. And we find ourselves in that same position with God. We're not really sure. I don't really want to please God right now because he allowed this to happen in my life or because this thing occurred in my friend's life or or maybe I'm just sort of caught up in my own thing and I don't really want to worry about him. I'll do that later. For whatever reason, we find ourselves in that position where we don't necessarily have the motivation to please God. So what do we do with that? Paul says that is for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. Ultimately, if we want to enter into this process of sanctification, if we want to have success in this, this lifestyle that's pleasing to God, first and foremost, we have to recognize that the desire comes from God. That ultimately, the, the motivation that we need to, to please God comes from Him from God himself. God has promised that he wants to change our affections. God has promised that he's in control of this process. This is something that was promised long ago. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, two passages that that talk about what we now call the, the new covenant. 
This idea that God was looking at the nation of Israel, uh, who had all these different laws and commandments and statutes, and he'd given them all these expectations, and yet they weren't meeting them. The nation of Israel was failing again and again and again to follow his laws and follow his commandments. And so in that moment, God kind of has this heart-to-heart with him. He's looking at the nation of Israel, he's speaking through his prophets, and he's like, gosh, what's, this just isn't working, right? It's that moment, some of us maybe experienced that moment of the relationship breakup, and, and someone looks at you and they say, hey, it's, it's not you, it's, it's me, you know? I'm just not in a position for this. This is God looking at the nation of Israel. He's not breaking up with them, he's staying with them. And he's not saying, it's, it's not you, it's me. He's saying, you, you are the whole problem. You are the sole reason that this is failing right now. He says, but I'm going to stay with you. He says, and I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. He promises in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, a new covenant. That essentially he would put his law. He says, literally, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will change your affections. I will change your desires so that you will want to follow me. Because he knows that our motivation many times is so very lacking. He knows that many times our affections are just so different from his. He says, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that within you. My daughter, Charlotte, uh, is just over 11 months old, coming up on her one-year-old birthday, and she's wonderful. I love her so much, uh, mainly because she just looks just the, like the cutest dang thing that I've ever witnessed. But uh, she, in and of herself, has, has learned uh, to love and appreciate celery sticks. And it's something that I just really... I, I love about her. She loves celery sticks. And you get like a chunk of celery and you can hand it to her and she'll just grab that thing. She's got no teeth whatsoever, but she will just jam that stinker in her mouth and just go to town. She'll just kind of gnaw on it for a while and, go, go, and drool everywhere. And then she'll just kind of leave it and go about her business, go about her daily tasks of crawling and crying, uh, all while holding that celery stick in her mouth, like this big old celery stogie. It's, it's awesome. All right. So she loves these celery sticks. And she does this not because it's just what she decided, right? Now she kind of, she's brought herself to that point of, of loving them, but it's not because she just woke up one day and was like, huh, blah, 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 which would translate to celery sticks. She instead has found herself in an environment where celery sticks are, are highly valued, where her father loves celery sticks. I love eating celery. It's just, it's strange. I know they're a little bitter. My wife hates them. It's okay. It's okay. But we, I love celery sticks. And then this has trickled down to my daughter where she has found herself, her, her own affections, her own desires have, have shifted because of the environment that she lives in. And many of us, we have those same quirks. Some of us, we, we find ourselves liking certain foods or, or certain activities. And it's something that maybe we didn't even set out to enjoy but yet we, we love it anyway. Why? Because we grew up in that environment. Some of us, we just grew up camping and we said, I will never, I will never camp when I'm 18, no more camping. And yet we find ourselves with our own children saying, we got to go camping. Like we got to go into nature, turn off that phone. Like we got to go do these things because we were shaped by our environment. We were shaped by our parents or our family members or our friends. Charlotte has been shaped to enjoy celery sticks. God has promised that he's going to shape our desires to fit his own. 
He's going to change our affections to match his. But it's more than just our desires. He also says, I'm bringing forth the effort. I'm not just bringing forth the desire. I'm bringing forth the effort. I'm not just changing your affection, but I'm also changing your ability. I'm equipping you to obey. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans 8 when he says that we can walk by the Spirit. This is what Galatians is speaking of when it it says that we are given the fruit of the Spirit. Every single believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit and it will bring forth fruit in our life. If we want to display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, those things aren't produced in and of ourselves. Those things are produced by the indwelling Spirit. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. We have to go to it for that fruit. God is not only changing our affections, he's changing our abilities. He's equipping us to live in such a way that brings him pleasure. Charlotte in and of herself cannot go get a celery stick. She can't even open the fridge. She's a baby. And she gets these celery sticks, though, somehow. Spoiler alert, it's me. I give her the celery sticks. Like, that's how you're wondering, like, how does she get those? It's me or her mom. Like, we give her those celery sticks. We equip her with those things. And I'm only able to get those celery sticks because I go to the true source of all celery sticks, H-E-B. From whom all blessings flow. I go there, and that's where I get the celery sticks. I'm able to hand them on to her. We, we have to go to the source of the celery in order to use it in our household. All of that desire is worthless unless we are equipped to use it, to, to have it. All that affection change in our hearts is useless unless our abilities are changed, unless the Holy Spirit is working through us to bring forth that fruit, to bring forth that celery. God says, I'm not just bringing forth your affections. I'm not just changing your desires. I'm also changing your ability. I'm changing your equipment. I'm giving you the ability to obey me, and yet... We still fail. Even in reading that, we're like, I still don't line up with that. I I fail to obey at times. So how do I put myself in a position to walk by the Spirit? How do I make sure that I'm in a position to be led by the Spirit, to to allow the Lord to change my desires, to allow the Lord to, to change my abilities? How do I position myself in that way? Philippians 2 is great because God, speaking through Paul, gives us three practical steps for how we align ourselves with that process. How we position ourselves to be led by the Spirit. First, Paul says we need to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Which at first glance seems a little strange because he's talking about this high theological concept. He's talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about restoration. He's talking about all these big things. And he says, oh, and hey, quit whining. Right? It's just a little bit of a, huh, what? Like, and why is he speaking about grumbling? And yet, if we pause a moment and really think about it, this makes a lot of sense because when you see grumbling in someone's life, it's, it's more than just, oh, my feet hurt. Or it's more than just, I'm tired of riding in the car. Or it's, you know, I don't want, I don't want to eat turkey. Like that's not, the, that's not the ultimate source of grumbling. The source of grumbling is more than just discomfort. The source of grumbling and arguing and complaining is pride. What grumbling does is it reveals within us a lack of humility. We saw this in the nation of Israel who walked through the desert, led by God. He's leading them to the promised land. 
And they grumble. They complain almost immediately. They start grumbling, complaining. They see the Lord part the Red Sea. They see the Lord send plagues upon Egypt. They're in this incredible moment of seeing so much that the Lord has done. And yet they start grumbling almost immediately about, oh, there's not enough food. Like, what? There's no food in the desert. God, well, we're just going to starve. We're just going to die of thirst. At least in Egypt, we had food. We, at least in Egypt, we had water. And so God causes food to fall from heaven. Manna comes from heaven. Bread just, find, just lands on the ground. He, he makes water just shoot out of the earth, out of rocks, out of dry sand. The Lord provides for them time and again, and yet they continue to grumble. They continue to complain. And they do this over and over and over again until eventually, even the, on this kind of 10th major grumbling moment, the Lord says, that's it. They grumbled and complained and were prideful to the point where they reached the promised land. God says, go in and take it. And they say, I don't know. Everyone in there is really big. I just don't know. God says, okay, fine. I'll give it to your children. After grace upon grace, after mercy upon mercy, he finally says, okay, you're going to lose out on this blessing. Moses himself lost out on that blessing. Not on salvation, but on the blessing that they could have had in the promised land. God says, I'm going to give it to your children. I'm going to give it to the next generation. Because maybe those people won't be so prideful as to miss my plan. We can find ourselves in our grumbling so prideful that we miss God's plan. I would challenge you to ask yourself, I mean, where are you grumbling? Where and why do you complain? At work or with your family or with your financial situation or with your health? Where is it? Where is it that life isn't meeting your expectations? Where is it that you feel like God's plan is not as good as your own? And you know, we got to be careful because if we allow that pride to rise up within us, I mean, we're going to miss the Lord's plan. We're going to miss the Lord's purpose that he's seeking to accomplish. Instead, what Paul's challenging us to do is, is to be humble, to not grumble, to not complain, to not argue. He says, but it's more than just that. We're not only seeking to abstain from grumbling and complaining, but we're doing this in an attempt that we may be blameless and pure. Children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society in which you shine as lights in the world. Now, when Paul's talking about this idea of blamelessness, he's not talking about perfection. This is a key distinction to make. When you look at the Greek, you're seeing not this idea of someone who makes no mistakes. Right? That's not blameless. Instead, it's someone who makes mistakes and then owns up to them, who deals with them in an appropriate manner. Someone who's not perfect, but acknowledges their flaws and behaves well, who seeks forgiveness when they need to, extends grace when they need to. Because, you know, a lot of times we as believers, again, kind of coming from pride, we see mistakes arise in our lives, in our work environment, in our family life, or wherever it is, and, and we don't necessarily want to own up to it. Sometimes we find ourselves ripping up that pillow, and then we're like, I don't, I don't want to look at it. Like, maybe it didn't really happen. Maybe if I just ignore it, it'll go away. Oh, we were on the back porch and we saw the potting soil and we were like, I got to get into that. And then we just ignore it. We just think, oh, I don't know, maybe if I just don't look, 
Maybe if I just ignore it for a time, maybe it'll just kind of go away. Maybe people will just forget about it, right? Like maybe, maybe the rain will wash it away. Like maybe I don't need to worry about these different things. Sometimes we have these mistakes in our lives and yet we don't own up to them. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not what we're called to as believers. If we want to be led by the spirit, if we're seeking to walk in a way that the Lord would set us apart and make us holy, we need to own up to those mistakes. We need to seek forgiveness when we need to. We need to admit that we have faults. We need to deal with those issues in an appropriate manner. Because in doing so, we become lights to the world around us. If we own up to our mistakes, the world around us will take notice. Because that's not natural. That's not something that people just do instinctively. We're called as believers to live in a way that's distinct. We're called to live in such a way that we're lights. That's Jesus himself uses in Matthew 5, talks about how we should be lights to the world. He speaks in John 17 about how we're not of this world. We should live as though we are citizens of another place, citizens of heaven, with our, our minds fixed on the things above. We know, based on Colossians 4, that our conversations should be rich, heavy, with grace. Our interactions should be heavy with, with grace and forgiveness, that our conversations should be seasoned with salt. Meaning that when we speak to people, that, that saltiness is meant to bring about the idea of, of, of enrichment. Salt at that time it was used to preserve things and it was very valuable. When have you spoken to someone recently in such a way that it brought value to their life? When's the last time you spoke to a coworker that, that enriched them? Your last interaction with your son or daughter, or your mom or your dad or your cousin, or your grandparents. Did that preserve them? Was that an interaction that was valuable? Because if it was, I mean, that's something that's distinct. And that distinction from the world, it's, it's honestly one of our enemy's favorite points of attack. It's one of the, his favorite ways to kind of bring us down. But, but, but what if, what if we really did have different sorts of marriages? What if our marriages as Christians were healthier? What if we worked harder? What if Christian students were more diligent and more respectful? What if Christians were known as people who were gracious and loving and forgiving? People, who, people whose interactions were, were heavy with grace, people whose conversations were seasoned with salt. What would that do to our city, our culture, our world? God calls us to live in a way that's, that's different, that has distinction. And yet we find ourselves lacking that. Maybe it's in a lie that you perpetuate. Maybe it's in a relationship that you know is just poison. Maybe it's in a, a habit that you can't quite kick in a work situation where you just have a certain attitude. Maybe it's in the way that you view yourself. Maybe it's in the way that you view others. Many times we find ourselves lacking distinction from the world around us. But God, through Paul, is saying, please be distinct. Be mindful of those mistakes that you've made. And then deal with them accordingly. But ultimately, we need to recognize that that humility that we're called to, that that blamelessness that we're called to, those things are honestly only made possible by the end of this passage. In and of ourselves, we're not able to just be humble 
in and of ourselves, we're not able to just be blameless. Instead, God, through Paul, points to us or points out to us, look, all of this is only possible by holding on to the word of life, by staying rooted and grounded in God's word. That's why Colossians 3 tells us that we should let the word of Christ dwell richly within us. God has spoken to us. He's given us his word. And we should use this resource. And in engaging with it, by, by, by staying rooted in it, by, by spending time in it and studying it, God uses it not just to inform us, but to influence us. He uses it to, to change our minds and our hearts and our wills, our desires. This is where that, that change comes forth. This is where those desires and abilities will, will be conformed to his image is by staying rooted, by holding on to the word of life, by seeking him daily. I mean, the Advent season is a perfect time for this. If you've never gone through an Advent study, I would encourage you to think about that over the next few weeks. Even just here at Grace, we have an Advent study that you can download off the website for free. That's a really just wonderful way for you or your whole family to, to walk through Scripture, to stay rooted in the word of life, to learn about the birth of our Savior, to learn about the fact that he's coming again. God calls us to hold on to his word because in doing so, it, it puts us under his influence. It allows the Spirit to, to conform us and change us. God's will and desire for Christians is that we would live in a way that pleases him. But we can't do it. We can't do it on our own. But thankfully, God has promised to change our affection, to change our abilities through his indwelling spirit, through his living word. So let's thank him for that right now. God, we, we, we thank you so much. Lord, for, for what you've done, Lord, for what you've accomplished, for what you've promised to accomplish. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a spirit, not of, of timidity and, and weakness, but God, it's a spirit of power and boldness. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work in our lives over these next few weeks as we're in this season that's all about the birth of your son. Lord, sometimes we try to make it about other things, about gifts or, or getting or travel or whatever it is, but Lord, we know that Ultimately, this, this is all about you. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work within us, that we would be bold in proclaiming that, that we'd be bold in having conversations with the people around us, the easy conversations that are so accessible at this time of year about your son, about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, about the good news of his life and death and resurrection. If you would take a moment now and just ask the Lord to show you in where where is he calling you to be holy? Where is he calling you to be set apart? Is it by being humble somewhere where you're generally prideful? Is it, is it by, by, by staying blameless, by dealing with the faults that, you've, you've, that have been dredged up or brought up recently or, or long ago? Is it an area where you could be distinct by just spending time in his word, by, by challenging your entire family to be rooted in his word? Ask the Lord to show you where is it this week, he's calling you to be set apart and ask him to, to change your desire, to change your affections, to equip you, to give you the ability to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct in that way. Ask him that right now.
Lord, once again, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, for this holiday season that just can be so fun and so rich and so rewarding. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to use this time as not just an opportunity to, to pull back or relax or go on vacation, but Lord, we would use this time as an opportunity to share your gospel with the people around us. We would use this time as an opportunity to be distinct in a way that's a light to this world. So Lord, we thank you once again for this morning in particular. Lord, we pray all these things in your will. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.